You're listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast with Andrew Schumacher. Beginning of Wisdom seeks to engage in theology and apologetics in the sight of God. You can learn more at beginningwisdom.org. Hello and welcome to the Beginning of Wisdom Live. I'm Andrew Schumacher. Tonight we are examining several inconsistent arguments promoted by Hebrew Roots folks, followed by Trinity Corner, talking about the angel of the Lord. So, um, yeah, excited to be here. Uh, This is going to be a really good show. Um, So, if if you've been paying attention since last week, uh, you know there was no show last week. Uh, that's just because we had some issues to deal with, uh, baby sick, uh, new house stuff. As you can see, I'm in a new location. Uh, I was here a couple weeks ago too, but we're still working things out. So um, just, uh, you know, Nikki's unfortunately can't be here in the studio yet. She's still healing and make sure everything's okay with the baby. So we're, we're just, uh, we're right there at the moment. But you can definitely follow her stuff on Facebook, Instagram, all of that. Links are in the description. And uh, just so you know, there were also technical issues last week. And that was another reason it didn't go go forward with the show. And those seem to have kind of been worked out with a little bit of a workaround. I had the new um, Mac OS update. And it doesn't really talk to the live streaming software very well. Um, I've got it running, but one thing I have experienced a little bit in working with it is that it does crash sometimes. So, so far it hasn't crashed while I'm in the midst of using it. So hopefully we're good. Usually it just does that when it sits idle for a while. But if I lose you, just rest assured if if we're not done with the show yet, I'm going to be trying to pull that back up and and keep going. So anyway, with all of that said... um, I'm going to go ahead and move into the topic, and hopefully everything works well. So the first section for tonight, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about some inconsistent Hebrew roots arguments, but also um, Trinity Corner later. For the, for the Hebrew roots arguments, what I'm, you know, the sort of overarching thing I want to point out, and this is, this is a general truth. It's, it's not always something that's easy to see. Um, because you have to kind of spend some time really studying something before you begin to see these things pop up. But they always do. Um, when when you have so, anything that's false, any teaching that's false, any doctrine, any really even outside of religious stuff. I mean, if someone believes false things, that falsehood will crop up as an inconsistency somewhere. Um God, that we live in a world that God made, that he made to operate according to truth and according to his truth. And so when, when people live by falsehood, they end up running into places where they can't be consistent. Um, this happens a lot, you know, this happens with pretty much any worldview. Uh, tonight I'm going to show a, a few examples 
of how this happens among Hebrew roots uh, folks. Um, if you have looked at old videos on my channel, you might know that there was an inconsistent Unitarian arguments um, episode that I did a long time ago, and uh, so now I'm, I'm not doing anything that extensive today, just going to look at, at actually three different um, things that are said uh, within the Hebrew Roots movement that, that we're going to see don't really match up. And, and I, there's a lot of ways you could look at them, but, um, but you'll see the, the inconsistencies as we go. So the first one I'm going to look at um, is something, and this, this gets said a lot, um, but I'm going to actually play some video for you here. And it's going to be from a Parable of the Vineyard video uh, called the Torah Movement. I'm going to have a few examples from this video. This video is sort of a... You might call it an, a proselytizing video or an evangelistic sort of video. Uh, it's something to try to you know to share with people who are not familiar with the Hebrew roots movement in an attempt to argue that that what they say is true. And one of the key things that that they all talk about, and I've talked about on on the show before, but is the idea of what is sin. You know, they they often ask that question. And they always want to go to the same place. They always want to go to, to 1 John 3, 4. Um, and uh, I'll go ahead and... We'll, we'll, well, it's it's in the it's in the clip I'm going to show you here. So let me go ahead and pull that up and play that for you real quick. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Listen. So here we see, th this is very, very common. So, so 1 John 3, 4, um, whoever sins, you know, is it, it has to do with the law. Um, you know, if I pull that up here in my uh, Bible software, you know, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Um, and this is true. I mean, sin is transgression of God's law. The question is, what law or, or how is John using the term law? And what you won't find, and this is where the, you know, there, you know, there, it's interesting, um, and this is, this is a little bit of a side note, but one common inconsistency, inconsistency here is that to think that, that John is referring here to the, the commandments, the 613 commandments of the, the Mosaic Law, what we find in the Torah. Um, but when we, uh, you know, when Hebrews folks, when we start talking about Paul and what he, when he talks about the law, all of a sudden, you know, Hebrew roots folks will have all this very nuanced understanding of, well, which law is he talking about? You know, the law of sin and death, or the law of liberty, or the, you know, the just the law of Moses, or what? Which law? We need to make sure because he's, you know, we we have to add all this nuance to everything. Um, but when we get to John, you know, we're we're not allowed to do that anymore, and it's a it's a bit of an inconsistency, um, and. The, the fact is, though, you know, what is the, the, the fact that it merely uses the word, you know, namas or, or a, a, a version of it here 
doesn't doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about um, you know the law of Moses uh, per se, or or not the law of Moses, you know, as understood by you know Israelites before Christ. You know, there's lots of ways that Christians look at this. You know, Christians read this verse. Christians understand we're supposed to obey God, um, but what does that look like? And you know, the the fact is that the New Testament is a divinely inspired commentary on the Old Testament, and not only on the Old Testament itself, but on the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ. So there's there's a lot of issues that are just aren't brought up. You know, we just quote the verse and and pretend that it means what we want it to mean. But here's the real the real inconsistency I see here. Um, and, and it may be a minor one, but it's it's something to consider. And that is that um, you know this is you know this is a Hebrew roots channel parable of the vineyard and, and they're they're just one example I could have picked so many others, but it they all these Hebrew roots folks will ask what is sin First John three four what is sin First John three four well you know what I never heard anyone in the Hebrew roots movement say or any version of it what is sin let's go to the Torah you know I've never heard anyone. Say, I mean, they'll they'll quote specific Torah verses about specific sins, but they'll never say, "Let's define sin by looking in the law itself," and and that's a big problem. There's a disconnect there. You know, if 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 you say you we need to be Torah observant, the Torah defines the law, or sorry, the Torah defines sin. Well, the problem you have there is that you don't um, you don't get to just I mean, you, sure, I mean, God's law defines sin, but you're, you're appealing to all these New Testament passages, you know, and I thought, you know, we we're supposed to go read the back of the book in light of the front of the book. Well, what does the front of the book say? Um, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that, you know, it, it doesn't say that this or that is, is a sin in, in the Torah, but the problem is, you know, they have, you know, they want us to be Torah observant, but they can't really define their terms as, as easily out of the actual Torah, out of the actual first five books of the Bible. Um, and the the fact is, you know, and, and this is minor. I mean, this isn't really, you know, a, a huge, huge... I've, I've got, you know, the ones I'm going to show after this are, are more serious, you know, co- self-contradiction going on. But, you know, this is just a, a good example of the fact that when when your only goal is really to try to convince people and you don't really aren't really defining things in light of just the scriptures themselves defining themselves you know you you kind of get a little bit you know disconnected but um, I want to move on to the next one so this is also from that same video the uh, the Torah movement video here and I'm gonna it's a little bit earlier in the video, and so we'll grab that spot, and this is right up front at the beginning. So this is where they really start just kind of beginning to lay things out. I mean, this is really one of the first things they say in the whole video, and so it should, you know, this is, this is foundational to the message here. So I'll pull this back up, and here we go. Today, you will see why many of us have been called out of mainstream Christianity and its traditions and have decided to truly follow our Savior the way scriptures tell us to. 
We have a true desire to obey our Father's eternal laws, precepts, holy days, and commands. His instructions for life. Torah, if you will. While some may think this is going backwards, we couldn't disagree more. This will be explained quickly, and not by lecture or fancy wording, but by the authority of His living word. We have been labeled as the Hebrew Roots Movement, Torah Observer. Okay, so this is a key. The key is there what he said at the end. He said, you know, this is not going to be by fancy argument or anything like that, but the authority of the living word. Like this is really, you know, the what, what a lot of them say, oh man, you just got to read your Bible. You don't really read your Bible if you're not, you know, one of, you know, part of this movement. And so if if it's according to the authority of the living word, um, how does that play out? Um, you know, it should be pretty simple. I mean, follow the word of God. Let's let's do it. But um, it doesn't quite work out that way. Um, just recently, uh, the holiday Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, um, occurred, and same channel, Parable of the Vineyard, had a video that they put out on on that. And it was a scripture reading and, and talking about the the holiday. And um, I want to, you know, play a little clip of same guy talking about, you know, on the live stream about uh, celebrating this this feast day. So here we go. Uh, in uh, those two, uh, two two passages we just read. And we also saw that <clears throat> to offer an offering made by fire unto Yahuwah, we know that we don't have a working Levitical priesthood. Uh, we know that we are under the priesthood of Messiah Yahusha. Uh, we do also know that when he comes back and during the millennial reign, the Levitical priesthood will resume, but until then, uh, we are not under a Levitical priesthood and do not have a temple, a physical temple of sorts, to offer these offerings uh, made by fire unto Yahuwah. So what are we to do on this day in that regard? Well, Peter says it best. First Peter 2, 5 says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Elohim by Yahusha HaMashiach. So um, I, I would have you pray to the Most High uh, as to what exactly uh, that means to you. So, you know, he says... You know, the, he says what's what's accurate. When it comes to the feasts, all of the feasts incorporate sacrifices, um, and you know, all except the the Sabbath. Um, but at every other, you know, monthly or yearly feast, they all incorporate these sacrifices. He talks about how, yeah, we can't do those now um, because we don't have an operating priesthood and temple and and all of that. And he gives us, you know, Peter. And what he says, and, and just says, well, how does that work for you? Well, just, you know, pray and do what feels right. <laughs> so the problem with that is that number, I mean, there's a number of problems with that. Why that, that's just not accurate um, to the Bible. But, but here's where we see the inconsistency. The, in the first video, when he's trying to convince people, you know, that, that Hebrew Roots movement position is true, he says it's the authority of the living word. We're going by the Bible. 
we don't, you know, we're not going by anything else. You know, it sounds like a lot of certainty. But when it comes to brass tacks, when the rubber meets the road, all that, when, when you get down to actual practice, there's, they don't, ha- they can't do it because it, what the actual Torah says, what the commandments say is to offer sacrifices in the temple, you know, at the tabernacle with, with the priests, that that's what you're supposed to do on this feast day. But they can't do it. Or they, you know, the, it's funny, you know, that it, on the one hand, they can't do it, they say they can't do it because they don't have the, the working priesthood and all of that. It's like, okay, fine, I understand that. But then what, what are we supposed to do? Because you see, you can't celebrate the feast the way that the Torah says. You simply cannot. So now what are you going to do? Well, their answer is do what, pray and whatever God kind of leads you to do. And, and I would ask, you know, where in scripture does it ever say something like that? That's why that's just not accurate in itself. But for the inconsistency, you know, where did your certainty go? You know, where did that authority of the living word happen? It, it, it just kind of falls apart when you're in practice, when you're actually trying to do what, what the Bible says. And I think that when you understand the, the law of God in light of the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that's when you can actually obey the whole law of God correctly without having these contradictions because you realize you know, that, that there was, that the way that the feasts were celebrated and why they were celebrating what they were under the nation of Israel to whom that law was given is different now. And it's different in light of Christ, it's different in light of the final judgment that was given um, in, that Jesus prophesied and that occurred in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, that, that all of this happened um, and, and now we're in, we're under a new covenant and we still obey the law of God, but it looks different now than it did then. And, and they even, I mean, looks different for them too. Um, but, but they're, they're trying to make it work with, with something that's just not, you know, the, the two don't go together and they're trying to make them go together. So, um, so yeah. And, and the other thing, you know, I wrote down is, think about the subjectivity of just ask God and whatever he says, you know, or however he leads you, you know, you're going to get people getting obviously different answers, different things that they think God is leading them to do. You're, you know, who's, who's right? Is, is anybody wrong? I mean, can, can you observe this feast incorrectly if you're not committing, you know, any other blatant sin against any other commandments? I mean, how do you do this? So, because you're already, you're already, you know, observing the feast without the sacrifices. So you're already doing it differently than the Torah says. So how different can you be, you know, is, is the question. So um, I've got one more I want to share. And this one is from 119 Ministries. This is going to be uh, a couple of videos they did. Let me go ahead and grab the first one. So this is on one of their videos. And by the way, all of the videos that I'm showing you, they are linked in the description so you can watch the whole video and everything and understand them 
not taking anybody out of context, but I mean, just kind of looking at where they're coming from and and all of that. So uh, this was this is from a video of theirs called "What's New About the New Covenant," and it's about the passage in Hebrews seven that talks about a change in the priesthood means a change in the law. So let's go ahead and take a look at that that our Messiah has taken up his rightful place as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It also details how the law was transferred to him as a new mediator. Please note that Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, it is not the law changed like it suggests in the English. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The word for change, as in change of the priesthood, and also change of the law, means to transfer in the Greek. It simply means that because the priesthood is transferred to the order of Melchizedek through our Messiah, then the law must be transferred to his administration as well. In fact, you can check this out for yourself. The first primary definition from Strong's means literally transfer from one place to another. So nothing changed. So same law, different administration. The order of... So here we see an argument being put forward, right? The, the change in the law there in, in Hebrews is a change, or a change in the priesthood, change in the law. It's, it's just a transfer. It's saying, you know, it's the, the priesthood transferred from the Levitical priests to Jesus. The, the law and administration of the law transferred from the Levitical priests to Jesus. Um, now, once again, you know, before I get into the where they they contradict themselves, um, I, I just want to point out that this argument is is an example of a lexical fallacy, which is where you you take a word and you look at all the different definitions and you pick the one you like. <laughs> um, and, and yes, Strong's, you know, in giving a definition of the word, it does say what he said. It says transfer as of one from one place to another, um, which is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that can be understood. I mean, that can be a physical thing, but what's interesting is that the word in the, if you, if you look up all the examples of that word and, and I don't, it was a longer Greek word. I, I don't remember it, but, um, that change or that, that supposed transfer there, there's no place. And, and I couldn't find any translations that actually say transfer <laughs> at this verse so you know they're 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 going out on a limb there basing based on a, a strong even strong i mean strong's is is tied to the king james and king james says change um and, and even though they give a, a definition of transfer no one that i could find transfers it or so no one i i could find no translation i could find translates the word transfer in this verse here in in uh in hebrews 7 12 and interestingly even the uh the very highlison uh, highly partisan hebrew roots translation the tree of life version uh uses the word altered which is definitely the complete opposite of what of what they're trying to put forward there um but i want to i want us to take that as so number one that's just it's a very very you know it 
you don't get to just grab a, any definition you want. And, and, and you heard the confidence. Oh, it's, it's, it just means transfer. That's what it means. Well, I mean, then why doesn't anyone transfer or why doesn't anyone translate it that way? Um, that's a question I would ask. But the, uh, the other issue is that this goes against some of their other teaching at 119. So 119 Ministries has an, also has another video um, we've talked about sacrifices. Uh, the video is called Sacrifices in the Backyard. And it's just talking about the same thing that the parable of the vineyard said. You know, we can't do sacrifices. There's no Levitical priesthood, that kind of stuff. But let's. I want to uh, play this one section here to, to kind of illustrate the, where the contradiction is. So let me take this and show, show you real quick. We cannot nor should not do sacrifices today is not because the law has been abolished. The word of God is forever. But simply because we are not Levites, nor is there a temple in Jerusalem to carry out such commandments. The temple was taken away as a form of punishment because of the fault of men. The temple being taken away is a curse, not a blessing. Does so, what's his reasoning? His reasoning why we don't off, can't offer sacrifices, number one, we're not Levites, and number two, there, there's no working temple, no working Levitical priesthood. But what was his argument in the other video? His argument in the other video was that in the, under the New Covenant, the, the priesthood was, it wasn't changed, it was transferred. So this doesn't, you know, you can say, well, we can't do sacrifices because we're not Levites. Well, if what you said in the other video is true, that the priesthood and the law and all this stuff was transferred to Jesus in, in his Melchizedek priesthood, and that, you know, then that means it's moved from one place to another. Even Levites can't offer sacrifices now. Um, if, that's, if, that's what, if what you're saying in the first video is true, then what you're saying here doesn't even matter anymore. We're, we, we should say we can't offer sacrifices because we're not Jesus, because now it's transferred. But because the, the importance of consistency isn't really there, it's not about that. Um, it's really just about trying to get around different arguments against their position. Um, that's why these, these things kind of pop up. Um, and, and, and you'll notice, again, this is sort of an issue that because... This is the way 119 tries to get around Hebrews 7. Um, but if they, if they were to acknowledge this, this contradiction and go another way um, and, and maybe repudiate that, and okay, no, it's, it's not transfer. It's you know, some other kind of change. Well, okay, you know, that'll keep them from having this contradiction, but what other contradiction is it going to cause to crop up? And that's, that's the issue. Um, so the, uh, the, that is sort of pretty much, you know, what I had for tonight. I mean, there, we could look up lots of them. Part of the problem is, I mean, you got to watch a lot of this stuff to, to find those, those specific inconsistencies. Uh, one thing I do want to do, um, as I'm, uh, pausing here in between my two sec segments of the show is uh, to remind you guys 
Um, I do want to try to take questions at the end of the show. Um, and so if you if you have questions in the chat, maybe some of you already have, I don't know. Uh, haven't been really been watching the chat, but um, if you have a question uh, based on what we're talking about or, or anything, um, you know, anything Bible or theology, um, I can't promise I'll have an answer to everything, but uh, be, feel free to put it in there. Um, just put a big in caps question at the top, and that way I'll know it's for me and not, you know, for someone else in the chat. But, uh, and if you have anything you know, on this topic or, or what I'm going to cover here in the next section here for, for Trinity Corner. So uh, with that, I'm going to move on to the next section. So uh, Trinity Corner, the Angel of Yahweh, part one. So this is going to be part one talking about Angel of Yahweh because this is a kind of a big subject. And there's a lot of, there's a, some housekeeping I have to do with this argument. Um, when When you're dealing with people who uh, deny the Trinity and as such try to, you know, head off various evidence for it, um, you, you come across a lot of, of silly arguments. And so I'm going to head some of those off uh, at the start, but I'll just kind of introduce what we're talking about. So it's been a little while since we've done another, done one of these. Um, but the what we're doing with Trinity Corner is we're, we're doing biblical theology. We're walking through the text um, from you know beginning to end, or you know starting in Genesis, working our way, um, and we are as we're looking at it, we're we're seeing how God has progressively you know revealed different aspects of His nature and of who He is and, and all of that, so that He. Um, can you know so that we get a, a, a fuller and fuller picture and as this goes we we begin to get some real essential all the essentials of the trinity really come out even in the old testament um we've talked about a lot of things up to this point we've seen plurality we've seen you know talked about the word of yahweh and how that's a title for for god himself um and, and all of that so today we're talking about the angel of yahweh so um once again, to sort of head things off, I'm going to talk, and, and I'll do this periodically as we go through, but I want to head off one bad argument that I've heard against um, using or looking at the angel of Yahweh and, and seeing evidence for you know the deity of Christ, the plurality within God, that kind of stuff. That argument is that the angel of Yahweh can't be Jesus because Hebrews 1.5 says, God never, God never said to an angel, you are my son. So there's a you know, Hebrews 1.5 talks about, you know, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I've begotten you. And there's there's a lot of reasons this is a bad argument. Um, we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, you know, you can't just grab a word from one context and apply it to others. Um, you know, and and the problem with that is, you know, you're you, if you're doing that, if you think that's a good argument, you realize you're using Hebrews one of the latest books in the New Testament, um, you're using Hebrews to write or to be your governing text to how you interpret, not only how you interpret the Old Testament, because, I mean, we talked about this, the, the New Testament, divinely inspired commentary on the Old Testament, but mostly what that has to do with is how has God progressively revealed things to where we are 
now in the New Testament, or you know, at the time of the New Testament and after. That is not what you do when you're trying to determine what did something in the Old Testament mean to the original readers. Um, you definitely can't do it for that. So in the New Testament, you have this passage, and, and we've talked about this a little bit about angel and malak and, and how it means different things, but the, the reason why you can't use Hebrews to, to interpret Genesis is it's a different author, different testament, different language, different time, you know, much, much later. Uh, obviously, the, the original readers of Genesis didn't have Hebrews to tell them anything. Um, so, you know, when, we, when we're looking at, you know, the New Testament and the Old Testament, we really have to keep those things in mind, that you don't just grab how a word is used in one passage and just apply it anywhere you want. Um, so coming back around, you know, we'll have, again, we'll have to address some of these silly arguments as we go, but coming back to um, the angel appearing in, you know, in the, the, the book of Genesis and, and as it goes on, the word for angel is malak. Um, and malak is a, a word that means, and, and it means messenger. I mean, we know this so even in the New Testament, Greek word angelos also means messenger. But especially in the Old Testament, the word malak does not mean, it, it doesn't say anything in and of itself about the nature of the the one being referred to. It's it doesn't just because the word exists does not mean that it's about, you know, spiritual beings necessarily. In fact, if you if you do a little word study on it, the word appears in the Old Testament about half of the time that that word appears, it refers to human beings. And that and 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 by that the single lar- you know the the largest you know, the winner, if we're going to be counting up, this is especially something Unitarians like to do, is count up the number of times a word is used a certain way. Well, the word malak is used of human beings more than it is of anything else. So, you know, it, it wins that, that little competition. If that's the case, then, oh, you know, according to their reasoning when they use that argument other, elsewhere, we should always say that angel refers to human beings. Well, that's just silly. We don't do that. That's not how you do interpretation. Um, but, but that's something we need to realize, is that this word, when we read our English Bible, sometimes it just says messenger, or it says, you know, it may say angel, but the word is just referring to some, someone bringing a message, and that's, that's what it means. It, it's, a, it's a job description. It isn't about, you know, the, the nature of the, the being, you know, whether it's, you know, and, and like I said, it's about half of the time it's it's people, and about you know you can only unambiguously say that it refers to what we normally think of as angels, um, as you know created spiritual beings. Uh, about seventeen percent of the time that it's used in the Old Testament. So when we look at what's you know what are the what's the rest of that time? Well, we're looking at. A lot of times, it's the the angel of the angel of the Lord, Malak Yahweh. Um, we just can't assume, based on the word Malak being there, that this is an angel like we would normally think of. That this is a created being. Um, it do, it just doesn't carry that. 
Um, and this is that's so important to realize. And so when we look at these texts, we have to, to handle them correctly. We have to handle them the way that the text is presented to us, not the way we want to based on much, much later writings or our own theological, you know, axes we, we want to grind. Um, so what, what I'm going to look at tonight is the first occurrence of this word, actually, and how it's used. And um, it is the first time Malak appears. It also, the, it also says Malak Yahweh, angel of Yahweh. Um, and we're going to, you know, the, the fact is, you know, this is always something that's important with biblical theology. The first occurrence of a word is very important because you, you realize, you know, in the text... There's no prior, for the reader, there's no prior um, establishment of meaning for this word yet. Not that the, the reader doesn't know the word. They're, of course, the reader is going to have their own experiences. that They're going to know the word. But in the text, the text has not defined the word for them to mean something specific or technical. It's just using the word for the first time. And therefore, the text is providing its own you know, framework for how this word is going to be used. So that's something to keep in mind too. So first we're going to look, uh, go ahead and look at this first occurrence. So this is in Genesis um, 16. And it's going to be starting in verse 7. And this is when the angel of Yahweh appears to Hagar. Uh, so we'll bring that up and, and we'll go ahead and read, read for a bit here. Uh, down through verse 13, it looks like. So it says, And the angel of Yahweh found her at a spring of water in the wilderness, at the spring by the road of Shur. And he said to Hagar, the female slave of Sarai, From where have you come and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of Sarai, my mistress. Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her authority. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring so that they cannot be counted for their abundance. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall have a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, for God has listened to your suffering. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and the hand of everyone will be against him. And he will live in hostility with all his brothers, so she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, You are El Roy, for she said, Here I have seen after he who sees me. So <clears throat> this is, you know, great passage. This is the introduction, not only of the word angel, but of the angel of Yahweh. And there's a few things to note um, as, as it pertains to everything that we've looked at up to this point. Um, it's this is the third time in the Abrahamic narrative in which we have an appearance with the name Yahweh. We had the first one in Genesis 12 where it said Yahweh appeared. Second one in Genesis 15 where the Debar Yahweh, um, the word of Yahweh appears. And then this is the third one here. We have three appearances followed by Genesis 18, the very next appearance of Yahweh where three men appear. So this, this three is, is established twice, um, first in those consecutive appearances, and then the appearance of the three men. So um, 
so first we have that. Uh, in this text, um, this angel never speaks of being sent by God. Um, this, you know, it's not that the angel never speaks of God in the third person. We'll, we'll see that in other texts as we look at them. But this angel doesn't say, you know, God sent me or anything like that. He just begins speaking to Hagar and he commands Hagar to return. He doesn't say Yahweh says return. He just tells her to return. He says, I will multiply your offspring. You know, again, this is not something that the text has ever established either now or later that a an unambiguously created angel does. Um, it's God does this. Every other time we see it, it's it's God who multiplies offspring. Um, the fruit of the womb, that's that's God's uh, territory. Um, in this text, the angel does speak of Yahweh in the third person in verse 11. Uh, so it does indicate a distinction between the angel and Yahweh. Hagar responds, and this is really important. Um, well, Hagar responds by calling the angel the God who sees. And we also see that Moses, the, the writer, the narrator of this text, indicates Hagar said this, you know, you are El Roy, to Yahweh who spoke to her. You know, she says she she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are El Roy. So Yahweh spoke to her. That's what that's what Moses says. That's what the text itself says. And then she called his name El Roy, the God who sees. So um, so this is indicating from the narrator's perspective that yes, she is talking to Yahweh. The one who is speaking is Yahweh. Though the same narrator also called this speaker the messenger Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, angel of Yahweh. So, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, just like when we looked at the plurality stuff going on in Genesis 18 and 19, we just have too many things going on for this to be a coincidence. You know, it's clear the angel speaks as if he's God, but also that that he is distinguishing himself from Yahweh in some way. Um, this all gets capped off, of course, when when it says that the angel is Yahweh who spoke to her, that the, the narrator tells us that. Um, so when we're talking about how we should understand phrases like the angel of Yahweh, you know, this is the first occurrence. This is our governing text. This is the text that tells us when we see angel of Yahweh appear, uh, and maybe even sometimes just angel, we should we should think of this text and ask ourselves, is this Yahweh like it was in Genesis 16? Is this new angel? You know, we should be looking for the same things that we saw this first time. Um, the same ambiguity, the same sort of, it. it's Yahweh, but it's, you know, a dis- there's a distinction there as well. You know, this, this kind of thing is what we should expect to see again and again. And, and it is in fact what we do see. Um, you know, the, the fact is that we begin to see from this text why, you know, this, this biblical theology of the Trinity is, is what it is. You know, the, the fact is that a, a Unitarian or a oneness type of theology really can't produce a text like this. Um, it, it's, it's confusing. If, if you really think of God as a Unitarian, single person, um, then, then you have to incorporate a lot of extra stuff and and throw in stuff that's not in the text to try to to try to make this work. Um, 
and and it's just very difficult to do so. A, a Unitarian God, you know, the revelation of a Unitarian God wouldn't produce a text like this, um, but a Trinitarian God would. I mean, this makes perfect sense. Uh, it, it's exactly what we would expect uh, if if God is is, trini- is a Trinity. So, uh, I want to look at one more text here in Genesis tonight, and then next time we do Trinity Corner, definitely we will spend some more time on, you know, on the angel of Yahweh for sure. Um, but the first one here is uh, the next one. This is going to be really this is the next appearance of the angel of Yahweh, um, and this is in Genesis twenty-two. So in Genesis 22, um, start here in verse 1, uh, where it says, uh, And it happened that after these things, God tested Abraham. So this is how it's setting it up. This scene is where God tests Abraham. And he said to him, God said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only child Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains where I will tell you. So the command comes from God. It's completely unambiguous that that's what's going on here in the text. Um, there's, there's nothing strange at this point. Uh, but then we go down to verse 10, and this is where Abraham is actually going through with it uh, and obeying God. It says, uh, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now, I know that you are the one who fears God, that you are one who fears God, since you have not withheld your son, your only child from me. Um, so once again, you know, like we saw in chapter 16, the one speaking is the angel. Once again, he commands Abraham, and he doesn't say Yahweh says, you know, he, he's giving, he's the one giving the commands. The commands are coming from him. Um, the What's interesting, again, just like in Genesis 16, we have the distinction between the angel and God, where the angel says, I know you fear God speaking of someone else, but he also, um, he says he knows that you have not withheld your son from me. Well, the only one who asked Abraham for his son was God. That was what we saw in, in verse 1, that this is a command that came from God. Now the angel is is claiming that that Abraham didn't withhold his son from himself, from the angel. Well, so he's, he's claiming to be the one who, to whom Abraham's offering the sacrifice. So, the I mean, there's lots of, of nuance to this. I mean, you, you don't offer sacrifice to anyone but God, of course. Um, but, you know, the, the fact is that we have this third person and first person thing going on here too. Um, and once again, this is exactly what we would expect if the Trinity is true, that that a command coming from God can come from this angel because this angel is God. But this angel is also distinct from another one who he, he refers to as God. Um, so there's a distinction, and yet there's a unity, that, that this is all going on in the same 
text. Um, now, at this point, I need to once again talk about another silly argument. So, one bad argument that that uh, is appealed to is that you know God, you know sometimes God talks in the third person about Himself. So there's no text that contains, you know, the text that contains you know this third person thing doesn't point to any plurality. Well. Yes, I mean certainly this happens, you know, in the in the uh, in a lot of the prophetic um, stuff. Most pretty much everything in the prophet that's spoken by God, in the prophets uh, that's spoken by God, pretty much all of it is is poetry, and it, it it says things like you know I blah 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 declares the Lord, but this whole thing is the Lord talking, you know, and 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 that's we don't really think too much of that because we see it so much, and it's it's this you know God talks in the third person, no big deal. But the fact is that in this text, you know, when we look at it closely, what does the angel say? He doesn't just refer to God in the third person. He says, for now, I know that you are one who fears God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I know, speaking in first person, that, what do I know? That you fear God, third person, because you've not withheld your son from me, back to first person. Because you didn't withhold your son from me, I know you fear God. This this is not just poetic language where God is speaking of himself in the third person. This is referring, the angel referring to someone else and knowing things about Abraham because of this third person and and because of how Abraham related to himself didn't withhold your son from me so that you can't just brush this off with with you know God speaks in the third person sometimes um, it just doesn't work that way um, we, we never see that in scripture this you, you can't explain that this away with something as facile as that so you know up to this point, you know, this is about as far as we can get on the angel of Yahweh tonight. Um, here's what we've seen. We've seen that the angel speaks with the authority of God without referring to the authority being derived from somewhere else. Typically, prophets will say, thus says Yahweh, God, is, God says this, that kind of stuff. Um, typically, you know, on you know, very, 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 very uh, little... You know, a prophet may begin speaking those words of God without first saying, you know, God says. But but that's not the norm. Um, and there's never any confusion, you know, about, you know, like this. We don't see this kind of thing from any prophet. And, you know, he re- the angel refers in his speech to God as someone else. But he is referred to by the author as Yahweh, um, as we saw in chapter 16. Uh, he claims to have done something that was done in the narrative by God. Um, and we can't write it off as just simply, he's an angel. And, you know, we can't just appeal to M- Malak and say, yeah, this is just a messenger. Uh, or just a just a divinely, you know, a heavenly created being. Um, because that's only one, you know, being that fits this title and certainly we see a few times in the new testament hebrews 1 5 i think being a good example where where that word angel 
is getting used technically to refer to something like that. Um, but that happens way, way, way later. And it, and even when it happens later, it isn't, you know, a hundred percent for, you know, always that. So, um, so you, you can't really appeal to that. So, so we're beginning to see some stuff about the angel of Yahweh. Uh, again, on the next Trinity corner, we're going to look at texts that, at more texts that talk about the angel of Yahweh and, and, and just, you know, solidify this even more that the angel is Yahweh and yet is distinct from another that is either called Yahweh or, or God or, or something like that. So um, at this point, we are going to go to our questions for the, the last few minutes of the show. Um, and I'm looking over the chat here, and it looks like we do have one question. Uh, Dustin Neely asks, who was Melchizedek? Probably need a whole show to answer this one. Well, yes and no. <laughs> There's a lot that could be said for sure about who who was Melchizedek. Um, my take on who Melchizedek is, um, what I I mean, I've I've definitely I've read a lot, listened to a lot of you know scholars and theologians and people talk about Melchizedek. I think that the short answer is. He was, he's a, a, hum, a human being. I, I don't think that Melchizedek is, is any kind of divine being, even though it does talk about in Hebrews that, you know, it talks about, you know, neither beginning of days or end of life, that kind of thing. Um, I think the reason, I think that the book of Hebrews, when it talks about him that way, is making reference to the fact that this, I mean, there's a lot of background to, to put in that, but, but the short answer, I think, where I'm at on this uh, this question is Melchizedek was a, a human person, you know, human being. He was the king of Salem or Jerusalem. I think when it what it calls Salem in, in that Abrahamic narrative is is probably the same city as Jerusalem later. He's the king of this city, but he's also a priest. He's a priest and king. And elsewhere, you know, later as we get into the Mosaic covenant and, and the law and the Levitical priesthood and all that, you see that this sort of distinction between the prophet Moses and the, and the priests who are sons of Aaron and all that kind of stuff. And priesthood is established then, later, as something that is due to your lineage. You're, you, you have to be descended from Aaron to be a priest. Um, you have to be in the tribe of Levi to work within the temple, but the priests themselves were all you know, of the family of Aaron. Well, Melchizedek, you know, before any of that happens, you have Abraham giving a tenth of his spoils from a victory to Melchizedek as an offering. And, you know, it gives a tithe. And, and the, the interesting thing is, well, we don't know anything about Melchizedek. He doesn't have, what, what's his lineage? Doesn't say, you know, what's his, you know, descendants, you know, who came after him? Uh, doesn't say. How did he die? Doesn't say. You know, he just sort of appears in the text with no background or anything. And then he's, but he's given, he's, he's a priest. It says he's a priest of the Most High God. Well, yes. And, and so I think that from Genesis, I mean, lots of stuff gets said about him later. But in Genesis, it, it only gives us that much. And I think that that 
should give us, you know, sort of, I guess, the, the short answer to who he was. But he's more than that symbolically. He's more than that typologically. I think that the text portrays him the way it does to portray him as a type, ultimately a type of Christ. Because Christ comes, he is not a Levite. He's not of the priestly line, and yet he is our high priest. Um, He's of the tribe of Judah that never had priests. And so how is Jesus going to fulfill this this position of being a priest? Well, he's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And the order of Melchizedek, anyone who's a priest like that is a priest by virtue, uh, it says, I think, in Hebrew of a, of a un, unspoiled or un... Oh, what's the word? So, something about his life. Um, uh, I'll look it up here. Um, by virtue, by virtue, by virtue. Oh, it's... Peace of the Most High God. Okay. Of course, it's going to be difficult. Let me try one other place here. Um, so in, uh, it's talking about the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and that's, of course, from the Psalm 110. Um, oh, indestructible life. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, and, and again, I don't, there, you can take this, and some people do take it literally, that Melchizedek was some kind of divine being, and he didn't have a beginning or end, he had an indestructible life. I think that he's presented without those other features of, of sort of humanity, and then that is drawn upon by the later authors. Um, but, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I could be wrong, that, and maybe he is some, you know, maybe he's the angel of Yahweh. I mean, I've heard some people say that. But, but yeah, that's um, kind of what I think he is. I think he's a type, um, and he's presented to be a type uh, for that. I think you're right, though. I think a, a whole show would do it. Um, there's a, actually multiple shows. One of the people I listen to, as you guys know, uh, Michael Heiser did uh, a couple of episodes of his Naked Bible podcast, on Melchizedek and actually talked about not only the um, the biblical references, but also some of the extra biblical, um, you know, Second Temple Jew- Jewish writing about Melchizedek and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's there's a lot. It's a really interesting question. I think I think that's what he that's how he kind of fits in. You know, the fact that he is sort of on the scene and he's a priest somehow without us knowing any of the other stuff, is what's drawn on by the author of Hebrews to say, Jesus is a, is a priest the way that guy was a priest, without lineage or any of that stuff, but due to the fact that Jesus has an indestructible life, he, he falls within that, that category of priesthood. And really, I think that is, because that priesthood appears first, again, we talk about this priority thing, 
that priesthood is really the more primary biblical priesthood. Um, the other priesthood comes later and is sort of a, an imperfect picture of the priesthood of Melchizedek that, that Jesus holds. Um, but that's kind of kind of how I come down on that. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed the show tonight. Um, was very I'm very thankful I was able to do it. Uh, it's been uh, it's been interesting lately, you know, just trying to to get stuff like this put together. Um, one thing I'm really excited about going forward, I have a uh, follower on Twitter who um, we've we've conversed back and forth a little bit, but he asked me to look into the gospel and how folks in the Hebrew Roots movement um, talk about the gospel itself. And I realized, you know, I'd, I'd looked at this, the whole Hebrew Roots movement, mostly looked at it as, an, as a difference of ethic, um, that, that most Christians, traditional Christians, follow some kind of ethic that's either, you know, and we've talked about this before, you know, lo- before law of Christ or the theonomy or, or whatever sort of ethic you follow, and how you see God and, and his law and your relationship to the law. And that the Hebrew roots position is just a different ethic, and I think it's incorrect, but it's it doesn't really... And I, and I think that there are probably lots of people in the movement who who are see it the same way, essentially the same way I do. They think they're right, of course. But they think, you know, the difference between me and them is that we just think different things are right and wrong ethically based on what the Bible says. Um, but we believe we're saved the same way. We believe all that kind of stuff. Well, um, it's, this has gotten me digging. And uh, yeah, um, down the road, I, I don't know how fast I'll be able to get on that topic, but looking at the gospel itself and what do they say the gospel itself is and and who there's some there's some interesting stuff there. So I'm um, looking forward to, to digging into that in the future. Um and uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you guys being here today and I'm glad we could do this. And hopefully, Lord willing, I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast. You can follow Andrew Schumacher and the ministry at beginningwisdom.org where you can find links to the YouTube channel and follow on social media. Sign up for email alerts to never miss new content. Please like, share, and rate the episode if it has blessed you. God bless and always be ready.